Hey everyone, it's Paul Durham and welcome to Telling Lies to Children. Before we get started today, I just wanted to give everybody a quick reminder about my brand new creative writing workshops that are starting this January. They are called Tribe of the Mind and they are for your 5th to 8th grade creative writers. These are hands-on workshops taught by me, uh, held right in uh, downtown Exeter, New Hampshire at the beautiful Yoga Life Institute Studios. Uh, the first one is January 21st. The next one is February 18th, and if you have a young creative writer out there who might be interested, uh, if you'd be interested in giving it as a gift this holiday, uh, check out my website for all the details at pauldurhambooks.com slash tribe, that's T-R-I-B-E. Uh, you can see a little video there, you can pre-register, uh, you can see where it's at and all that good stuff. So I hope to see some of... Uh, some great young creative writers from New England and maybe even from beyond. Um, check it out. And uh, with that, we'll get started right into the uh, podcast after the intro. Thanks for joining me. Shh. Are the kids gone? Good. It's time for Telling Lies to Children with me, your host, Paul Durham. This is a first-of-its-kind podcast, one hosted by a children's author, that's me again, but intended for adults who live and breathe children's literature, that's you. Whether you're a librarian, a media specialist, a teacher, or a parent, we all work with children every day. But sometimes, it's nice to talk like adults with adults who share our love of children's books and publishing. I'll be chatting with editors at the world's biggest publishing houses, literary agents, award-winning authors, booksellers, librarians, and even young readers. Join me and my guests as we give you a candid, behind-the-scenes look at children's publishing, the business of telling lies to children. But only the best kinds of lies, of course. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, it is Paul. I'm back after a couple weeks away for the Thanksgiving break. I hope you guys all had a great holiday. And uh, as we cruise into the holiday season now, uh, I'm actually going to be uh, doing podcasts a little bit differently. I think we'll be doing them every other week uh, until January when I will have a whole new lineup of guests to interview and chat with. Um, they should be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, uh, I thought this would be a good time of year to do something a little bit different uh, than what I've done so far, and that is answer some questions. I get asked questions all the time uh, on school visits, when, I am, uh, when I'm at the bookstore uh, just uh, uh, signing books. Uh, I, I get them sent to me by email. I get them sent to me um, by snail mail, um, all sorts of different ways. And it's, uh, it's, I wish I could answer them all. I always try to, uh, to reply when I can, but I thought this would be a great uh, opportunity here on the podcast to answer some uh, questions for, for readers out there. And uh, I got some great ones. So I think I'm just going to jump in. And uh, the first question or questions I got um, will stay close to home right here in my hometown of Exeter, New Hampshire. Uh, this one comes from Ian, and his question is, uh, how do you develop the settings of your stories? 
which is a which is a great question. Settings are one of my uh, favorite things to write. If uh, if you've read the Luck Uglies, um, you know that uh, Village Drowning uh, is almost like a character unto itself. That's how I think of uh, Village Drowning. Anyway, um, I I think that uh, for me when I sit down and start to come up with a new concept or an idea for a book, I usually start with two things. Um, that's the setting, and that is at least one, hopefully two or more, uh, interesting characters who live there. That's kind of how my process starts. So how do I come up with those settings? Well, um, it's a lot of it is observation. Um, I observe uh, things around me. Um, I write fantasy for the most part, or at least um, I don't necessarily write realistic fiction. There are a lot of realistic elements in there, but the settings often are, you know, fantastical. So sticking with the luck uglies, um, you know, Village Drowning is sort of a medieval type village. Um, it's uh, has cobblestone streets and sort of, you know, old wooden buildings and there's brick and there's some Gothic archi- architecture mixed in there. Uh, it's really a mishmash of, of different things. And in the way I came up with uh, Village Drowning in particular was uh, observing uh, some of the uh, buildings near where I live uh, in New England, sort of the old seacoast colonial era towns, um, like Portsmouth in New Hampshire. There's obviously, the, you know, there's Salem in Massachusetts. Um, Boston has lots of old historic buildings and, and, and charm. There's a lot of old um, port towns around here. Uh, so that was part of it. But also, um, Village Drowning is not, you know, necessarily in colonial New England. Uh, it also blends elements of you know, medieval cities. So I just like to, I like to, to, to look at, you know, what's around me to come up with settings. Now, obviously, depending on what kind of stories you're writing, um, you may not walk out your door and have a setting that really applies to that. So one of the other uh, things I like to do is I like to look at images. Oftentimes, uh, interesting pictures or images inspire me. Um, so when I did a creative writing workshop this past summer, one of the exercises I had the students go through was to look at some images that I had found, and I display them up on the board, of abandoned cities. And if you go on uh, Pinterest or other websites like that, you can find some really just interesting you know, photographs and uh, you know layered pictures with all kinds of um, stuff that will really just you know send your mind into a into a spin thinking about it. Those, you know, for me, abandoned villages were really a cool sort of a cool thing to look at. You have these old uh, villages, these old structures that have been abandoned for you know times sometimes ten or fifteen years, sometimes hundreds of years, and they've been sort of overgrown and and overtaken by uh, nature and all the, the the trees and and vines that are, are growing over them. So pictures are a, are a, a big thing for me. So if you want to write fiction that's set in some sort of, you know, fantastical world, or if you want to write science fiction that's set in outer space or on another planet or, or something like that, um, I, one of the tips or one of the recommendations I would have is to um, see what you can find as far as images, whether it's, you know, whether it's online or, um, you know, movies or TV, uh, you know, or, or you know, drawings and illustrations, anything that, that can sort of put you in that place um, that you wouldn't be able to go to on your own, but but the visual uh, nature, uh, it, it can it can another great you know uh, great art, uh, great visual art uh, can really inspire uh, great written art and, and stories and words. So that's something that has uh, that's always uh, worked for me, and that that I find helps inspire my settings. Ian had another question uh, related to that, uh, and it is: Do you 
include sketches in your writing process? Uh, again, which I think is a it's a great question. And, and I'm not an illustrator. I'm not you know I'm not formally trained. Um, when I was young, I used to love to draw. I would always be drawing pictures. And I think the short answer is is yes. Um, I do include some sketches in my in my writing. Um, so for example, uh, when it when I was writing the Luck Uglies, um, I was you know, creating this village drowning that we I just talked about a few minutes ago, and it would I thought it would be helpful to have a map. Uh, I was describing all these these places and and streets and 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 you know different uh, landscapes and things like that, and I thought it would be useful to be able to see that. So I actually did a sketch, my own sketch of village drowning, and uh, not only did I do it on paper. But I also, uh, in my writer's coop, which I've talked about a million times before, um, in my, my coop here, I have these two big sort of uh, doors that open up, and I painted them uh, with chalkboard, chalkboard paint black. And then in chalk, um, I actually drew the map. So it, is, uh, it was right there as reference. And then I took that map when it came time to actually have a professional illustrator illustrate my books. Um, I actually sent that image on to my editor and the art designers so that the illustrator could incorporate that. So it's pretty cool. The maps that you see in the front of um, each of my Luck Uglies books, uh, I did original versions of all of those, and then the artist came in and uh, made them better. So that was kind of cool and kind of fun. I also, just with my kids when I was writing the Luck Uglies, we would sit and we would sketch the characters and we'd sketch the monsters, the bog noblins and things like that. And even though it wasn't, they weren't exact um, or exactly what I, I would want them to look like, it was a great way to sort of, again, help with the creative process, get me thinking about what they might look like. And it was just a fun way to sort of also bring them into the, bring them into the writing process with me. So if you do love to draw and you do love to sketch, um, again, that's a great thing that you can incorporate into, into your creative writing. Uh, even if you don't use them in your in your story or your book or whatever it may be, um, it'll definitely, I think, help with your creative process. Okay, moving on to our next question. This one is from Samantha in Austin, Texas. Um, I Just as an aside, I, I had a great uh, bunch of school visits in Austin, Texas a couple years ago, um, and you may have heard me talk about Austin. I really loved it down there. Uh, but Samantha's question is, uh, <laughs> and I've heard this one before, do you really keep a lucky frog in your pocket? Uh, and the answer to that is yes, I absolutely do. Uh, even though I say that I'm a, a uh, children's author and teller of fibs, that is not a fib. I actually have a lucky frog in my pocket. Um, and oftentimes I'll be asked at school visits to bring it out and produce it and show it to people. And I do. Now, of course, this is not a living frog. It's not a, it's not a real frog. That would just be cruel and probably messy. Um, this is a tiny, tiny green porcelain frog um, that my wife gave to me uh, a long time ago and that I keep in my wallet just I say it's for good luck uh, it also helps remind me of um, of home when I'm out on the road uh, doing uh, you know doing uh, touring and, and doing school visits and things like that now one thing that I will confess about lucky frog uh, is that he's not the original I have actually lost I think two or three versions of the Lucky Frog before this one. Um, so I joke that sometimes I think that you know maybe Lucky Frog he uses up his uh, uses up his good luck and then kind of hops away and disappears. Um, but this last one I've had has has stuck around for a while. I think I've had him for a few years now. I have not lost. I managed to not lose him. Um, although there was one time at a school visit this past uh, about about a year ago this past winter um, when I had lunch with a group of students and somebody asked to uh, if they could see him. So I, I took him out. 
and everybody passed them around the table. And somebody actually, I, I even made a point. I said, make sure, you know, I, I, I don't want to lose them. Make sure you, you, you just give them back. And the student next to me did put it in my hand. I put it down on the table and then I managed to get up and leave him there. Um, fortunately, I was driving to another school nearby that same day and I was able to uh, come back and uh, and recollect Lucky Frog and put him safely back home in my pocket. Um, so the long story short, yes, I do have a Lucky Frog in my pocket. If you're curious to see what he looks like and you go on my website, that's pauldurhambooks.com, there is a picture of him hidden somewhere on the website. So see if you can uh, see if you can find him. You have to hunt around a little bit, but he is definitely on there. Okay, we're going to go a little farther away for this next question. This question comes from Elizabeth in Scotland. It's always I always get a kick out of it when I hear from readers in uh, in other countries. It, it, it's so fun and reminds me that you know the Luck Uglies uh, really has expanded and gone beyond just uh, just uh, Exeter, New Hampshire, where I where I sit and I, I do these podcasts and, and do my writing. So Elizabeth asks, uh, in this oh this is kind of like the question we we answered uh, I answered earlier. Are the books set in our world? When I was reading, I felt as if Village Drowning was set in Ireland and the Isle of Pest was in the UK. Uh, that's a that's a, a, an awesome question by Elizabeth, and it's also very uh, insightful. Because uh, when I was answering Ian's question earlier, I talked about some of the ways I get ideas for setting. And one of the things I didn't mention that I probably should have is research. Um, I also do a lot of research, and that's uh, that helps me come up with settings. And Elizabeth is really right on, right on the money. So Village Drowning, when I started to put it together, um, first of all, it's not set in this world. Okay, it's it's not set in any particular place or time. It's really not set in any uh, uh, you know particular uh, country or or um, any culture uh, that we can think of. But it's sort of inspired by a lot of different uh, types of cultures in different places, and. The village drowning does have a very sort of Irish feel. It has a has a certain um, Celtic feel to it. Uh, you know, a lot of the you know with the with the four leaf clovers and the cross swords and the the tartan kilts and things like that. There's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of uh, Celtic elements to it. There's a lot of European elements to it. Um, as I said before, there's a lot of even colonial uh, New England imagery there. Um, but that was my sense. I really did want to evoke Ireland and. Uh, and uh, the UK as well to, to some extent. Now, the Isle of Pest, uh, is, which is in the second book called The Fork Tongue Charmers, The Luck Ugly's Fork Tongue Charmers, the Isle of Pest was actually inspired by a real place as well. And those are uh, the Hebrides, which are these sort of remote uh, islands off of, uh, off of Scotland uh, in, in the UK. Uh, they're, they're sort of windswept, windswept and green and lush, um, but still very harsh at the same time. And, uh, and, and that was very much an inspiration for the Isle of Pest, which is, uh, if you know Luck Ugly's story, that's where Rai's mother, um, her name's Abby, that's where Abby's family is from. And uh, the heroes of our book spend some time on the Isle of Pest in uh, the Luck Ugly's Fork Tongue Charmers. Now, the interesting thing is, as much as I say it's inspired by the, uh, by, by the Hebrides and, and uh, these real places, um, it's actually flattering that uh, people pick up on that because I've never actually been to either of those places myself. I've never been to Ireland. I've never been to the UK. Um, I've never been to the, the Hebrides. 
And, uh, and it's the way I tried to evoke that was by research. I looked at pictures, I read about them, um, looked at a lot of images and uh, watched some documentaries. And that was the way that I was able to sort of get a feel um, for those places. Again, it wasn't exact. It wasn't like I was doing a, a travel log, so it didn't have to be exact. It just I just wanted to sort of give you the feeling that you might be somewhere like that. And uh, I, I'm really happy that that was effective. Now, Elizabeth has another question, and that is, are there any other books you're currently writing? And uh, the answer to that is an absolute yes. There, there are. Um, I, I am always writing a book. Um, I, I, the the one uh, that I've been working on the most lately uh, is called The Last Gargoyle. And uh, if you have uh, listened to the podcast, you may have, have heard about this one before. This is my next book that will be published um, by Crown Books for Young Readers. That's an imprint of Penguin Random House, and it looks like that will be out in spring of 2018. Um, it seems like a long way off, but I think it's going to come up on us quick. I am just going into copy edits on that book, and they're working on the art and the cover and the jacket and all that cool stuff. So very soon I'll be able to, to share some more information on that. What I can tell you about The Last Gargoyle is that it is told from the first-person perspective of a grotesque. Uh, and if you've ever heard me speak before, you probably know the difference between a grotesque and a gargoyle. Uh, to put it simply, uh, gargoyles have an architectural function. They spit water out of their mouths, or they, the purpose of that was that they would drain water away from rooftops and the facades of buildings and things like that. Whereas grotesques don't. Grotesques are ornamental. Uh, they used to be put on top of things like churches or libraries or cathedrals. Um, the idea being that uh, it may have made them look visually more interesting or that they might have warded off evil spirits or something like that. Well, in The Last Gargoyle, uh, Penn Hallow is the last grotesque residing in modern-day Boston. And he does not like being called a gargoyle because he doesn't spit water out of his mouth and he has important things to do, like keeping his building safe um, from evil spirits and things that go bump in the night. But he's having a bit of a problem. Uh, things are starting to get a little bit out of control, and he may be in a little bit over his head. And that's sort of the idea behind The Last Gargoyle. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to write, and I hope that uh, I hope you're looking forward to reading it as much as, as I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, and then uh, I'm also working on another book that will also be out, uh, published by Crown uh, the following year in 2018, um, which is another sort of spooky, a little bit creepy, a little bit funny uh, story that I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about, uh, you know, in the coming coming months. And then I'm also working on um, a, a full length uh, young adult book. Um, and that's uh, and that's uh, something that I, that I have in the works as well. So again, as I, as I get closer to finished with those other two books, I will uh, I'll tell you a bit more about those. But yes, I'm always always working, always writing. Um, it's what I love to do, and there's always at least one or two books sort of uh, going at at any given time. Okay, our next series of questions are from Amelia in Hampton Hampton, Maine. Uh, Amelia's first question is. When did you know that you wanted to be an author? Uh, this is another great question I get asked all the time. And I think I, I knew as far back as I can remember. Uh, I always had a dream uh, to be doing this. I always loved telling stories. I always loved writing stories when I was uh, when I was young. Um, I remember before I could even write, actually you know, before I could even write letters and words and things like that, I would draw pictures 
and uh, and then dictate what I wanted to, to my mother or whoever else was nearby and, and willing. Um, I would dictate uh, the dialogue and, and the action, and then and then she would write write out uh, above my pictures. Um, what the characters were saying. So I guess you could call those early graphic novels <laughs> for me. Um, but I've been doing that for absolutely as long as I can remember. Um, being an author, being a published author is something I always dreamed about ever since I was a child. Um, it took me a long time. I think I was 40 years old when my first book was finally published, the first Luck Uglies book. So it was. Uh, it, it, it took a lot of hard work, a lot of patience, and, and frankly, a lot of stubbornness. Um, I got rejected uh, quite a bit. I got a lot of people saying thanks but no thanks when it came to publishing my books. And um, so I am, I'm, I'm terrifically happy uh, to be doing what I am doing now. Um, Amelia's next question is, how long did it take you to write the Luck Uglies? And... Uh, and that's another great question. It's it's uh, it's really interesting. I think if you've uh, listened to the podcast before, if you've ever met me, you've probably heard my story, which is that I wrote the Luck Uglies um, for my daughters. It was never intended to be uh, published. I never intended to show it to agents or uh, editors or anything like that. I had I had given up on writing um, because I'd been rejected so many times trying to write adult fiction that I had really just kind of given up altogether. And then my oldest daughter came to me one year and asked if I would just write her a short story for uh, for Christmas. It was actually, I can tell you, it was right around this time of year in 2010. So I guess we're talking about six years ago. Uh, and that's what I started doing. I just started writing a chapter a week. Uh, and I had a very demanding audience. Uh, they, every time I wrote a chapter, they wanted to know what happened next. So I didn't have time to go back and polish and and obsess over every little word. I just had to tell a story. And it took me about three months to write that first Luck Uglies book, that first draft of it, which is, I think, about as fast as I've ever written a book before. And I may not ever write a book quite that fast again. Um, so the first draft took three months. That said, there's a lot of editing. There's a lot of revision that goes on after that. Um, but the first draft came very fast. My other two books in the Luck Ugly series were um, took a little bit longer. Uh, that might take, you know, the first draft may have taken five or six months in those cases. But altogether, when you think of when you say what it, how long it takes to write a book, and I'm doing air quotes around write um, with my fingers right now, uh, basically by the time it's it's from... Uh, the first word is written on a page until the time that you're done editing. It's For me, it's usually about a year, but a full year. And uh, that doesn't count the amount of time that an idea sometimes sits with me. So sometimes I get an idea, an idea for a book, and I might sit on it for a year, or I might just be thinking about it for a year. It's sort of there in the background. I have books like that right now that are just kind of there in the background that I've thought about that I haven't actually put any words to paper yet on. And by the time I get around to doing that, it might be you know two years, three years down the road. So... Um, but the time from actually starting to, to really finishing, I think, is, is just about a year for me in most cases. Um, and this, is, this question kind of goes along with that. What is the longest time it's taken you to write a book? Well, here's what's interesting. Um, as I was saying before I started writing for children, uh, I used to try to write for adults. I used to write adult uh, crime fiction. And my very first novel I ever wrote um, was, was for adults, and I started writing it in law school, my first year in law school. So I was... I guess 22 or 23 years old. Um, it took me all together about, I would say, almost uh, eight or nine years to finish that um, because I started it and I stopped and I started it and I stopped. And by the time that I actually 
finished that novel and and got an agent and we took it to publishers it was it was yeah i think we're talking almost eight years so that's been the longest that was the longest one it ever took me to write it wasn't necessarily because the story was difficult to write or or uh the process was hard it was just that i started and stopped and started and stopped um so that was by far the 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 longest and incidentally that's the one that never got published so uh go figure okay um, amelia's next question is how many tries did it take you to find a company that would accept your writing? Wow, Amelia, I'm almost embarrassed to say um, that I can't remember because there were so many tries. Um, between that first book for adults that got rejected by every publisher in New York um, to the first uh, manuscript for The Luck Uglies, that got rejected by I can't tell you how many agents. Um, it it probably got it probably yeah I've probably been rejected by well over fifty publishers and and agents more than that even combined um, before I finally got my first book published. Um, and that unfortunately is not an unusual story. Uh, it I think if you've asked if you asked a lot of writers, there are some who are who are very lucky. They find an agent and they and they find a publisher for their books right away. Um, but for most of us, it's a it can be a very long process. Um, publishing's funny like that. Uh, it, it, it's very hard to get somebody to believe in your work and to publish your work. Um, but the good news is, it only takes one. It only takes one agent. That somebody who that agent is somebody who sells your work um, to the publishers. Uh, so it only takes one person who believes they can sell your work, and then one editor who really believes in your work and the quality of your writing. Um, and that's sort of that's sort of what it, it takes to, to get you in the door. And then lo and behold, um, you know you can have a book that that is uh, published and, and very successful. And there are a whole bunch of agents and editors out there who, you know, can look back and say, "Oh, I passed on that one," and that happens too. So, um, so the answer is it, it many, but all those failures. Um, it, it's it's something that I think uh, makes you more persistent. It's why I tell anybody who may want to be a writer or who may want to pursue anything creatively that you have to be stubborn. You have to believe in yourself more than anybody else does because you have to be willing to be able to take those rejections and just know and understand that uh, you will, um, you know, your time will come and you have to truly believe it because otherwise you won't keep going. So you have to, you have to be very passionate about what you do and, and absolutely believe in yourself and don't let those failures or rejections get you, uh, get you down. And then we have Amelia's final question, which is, what is your editing process? Do you have a lot to edit? And uh, and again, that's a great question. I think I talked a, a little bit about this earlier, but but not really. So I'm one of those writers. Um, I tend to do a lot of polishing and editing as I write. So I will write, you know, a chapter or two or three chapters, and then I'll kind of polish them and edit them as they go, as I go. Um, that's that's one approach. Some writers take the approach of they just fly through their first drafts. You know, they just put everything on the page, they get it out of their head, and then they do back. They go back and they do heavier editing afterwards. Um, sometimes I think that that's that would be an easier way to go. I, I sort of uh, take the way of editing as I go along, um, and as a result, what what I had to learn is that I have to balance that, and I do have to sometimes just push through the parts I'm struggling with and realize I can come back and fix them later. So I do a lot of editing as I write, and then uh, what, what, as a result, usually uh, my first drafts are pretty, um, I'll 
what we call it, the term clean, meaning that, uh, you know, the punctuation and the, and the writing is, is, is pretty solid after the first draft. And then I go back in and, you know, edit some of the story points and, and I do some, you know, cleaning up and, and, and things like that. So that, that's my approach. Although I, I still do at least two or three, uh, drafts of every manuscript before, um, before they're done, before they get to the, you know, closer to the final stages. Um, so editing is a huge part of, of what every writer does. Uh, nobody goes through and, and has a first draft that is beautiful and perfect. It just doesn't happen that way, especially not with a, especially not with a, a long piece of fiction like a novel. Um, everything is polished and edited and edited some more. Uh, it's as much of a part of the process as writing that first draft. And one of the things is, is after you've done this for a while, you, you learn to sort of enjoy and embrace the editing process because instead of starting from scratch, with a blank page, which is, which is fun in its own way sometimes. Um, but instead of being starting completely from scratch, you have something that you can then mold and make better. Um, so editing is always, uh, is, is always there. And the answer is yes. I always have a, I always have a lot to edit everything. Every word I put down on the page is edited in some way, whether right after I put it on the page or three months later as part of a, a redraft. Um, so those are some great questions by, uh, by Amelia. Okay, and then I have. I guess this is more of a uh, this is more of a comment than a uh, th- or a request than a question, but I think it, it, it it's, it's sort of a question. So Hadassah in Pennsylvania writes, uh, "Will you please write more Luck Ugly's books?" <laughs> which is uh, which is great to hear. I'm I'm so glad that uh, that there are so many fans out there who've enjoyed the Luck Uglies and and want more. And um, and certainly after after the the three Luck Ugly's books after the trilogy's done, um, there's of course. Uh, all sorts of, of, of wonderful stories that can be told in that world. Um, what I will say is that, is that for now, um, as I was talking about earlier, um, I have a, a whole bunch of new books in the works um, that are not Luck Uglies related. They're still for readers, just like fan, you know, if you're a fan of the Luck Uglies, I think you'll be a fan of, of, of all the other stuff I'm writing and that I have coming out. Um, right now, there's no plans for uh, any new Luck Uglies books. Um, but what I will say is to keep your eyes peeled uh, on my social media and my website and things like that, because I think I may be putting together um, some short stories and making them available um, online, uh, either as ebooks or, or digitally or something, um, just to fill in some backstory, to fill in some characters that may have um, been really cool and interesting from the Luck Uglies that you'd like to know more about. Um, there may be some of that coming down coming down the road. So um, if you haven't gotten your full fill of the Luck Uglies yet, um, don't fear. There may be uh, there may be a little bit more on the way. And uh, last question, because um, we're getting almost to a half hour now. Um, this is from Javier in Delray Beach, Florida. And Javier asks, uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? <laughs> and I laugh at this question. And the funny thing is, uh, I this would be hard for me to answer, uh, but I, I think I got this question once before, and it caught me off guard. But if I could have any superpower, I think it would be to be invisible. And uh, I'm sure my wife would get mad at me for saying this because I always feel like, you know, the, the idea of being invisible and being able to disappear, especially when I'm at parties and in places like that where I don't want to be at, being able to just sort of disappear into a corner. Um, I, I do a pretty job. I do a good job of doing that anyway. But to actually literally disappear, I think that would be um, that would be pretty cool. Um, and uh, and as a writer, um, as somebody who writes writes stories for kids, um, 
a lot of times writers we do sort of try to step away and disappear and what we do is we observe and we and we we like to watch the world around us we like to watch how people talk and what they do and and how they interact with each other um and observe sometimes more so than interact because that's how we make our work uh, authentic um it's you know even though we write characters who may be in fantasy books or or you know uh scary books or, or science fiction whatever it may be um you want your char- characters to still feel real and seem like real people and one of the ways you do that is you you watch and you see what you know you see what people do and you observe and and uh you meet people and uh and, and build that into your work so uh, javier if i could have any superpower it would be to be invisible uh, and I guess with that, maybe that's my cue to uh, disappear for another week or so and wrap up this uh, episode of Telling Lies to Children. Um, thanks so much for joining me. I will be back actually in two weeks, um, just before uh, just before we get into Christmas. And in that episode, I think I might do a little reading. I'm gonna uh, maybe we'll do a little reading and talk a little bit about Silvermus, which, if you uh, remember the second book, uh, The Luck Ugly's Fork Tongue Charmers, um, there's a uh, there's a there's a couple chapters that talk about Silvermus, which is the holiday around Village Drowning, and I thought it would be fun to uh, talk about that on a holiday-themed podcast. So thanks again for joining me on Telling Lies to Children. Um, I hope you'll all be listening again soon. Take care. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Telling Lies to Children was brought to you by, well, nobody, just me and my guests. One of the nice things about being completely unknown in the vast world of podcasting is that you don't have to listen to me read 10 minutes worth of ads at the beginning and end of every episode. But I hope you'll check out my website, pauldurhambooks.com. There you can find out more about the Luck Ugly series, you can book a school visit, you can shop the newly opened Dead Fish Inn gift shop, or just reach out and say hello. I'd love to hear from you. You can also find links to all of my guests' websites and social media there. So until next time, I wish you happy reading, ugly luck, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. that woke you up. See you next time.